If you have your Bible, please turn with us to John. We're gonna look at chapter one, verses one through five, and we're gonna look and skip down to verses 14 through 18. We've already heard this read in our Advent reading, but you're gonna hear a few more verses today. Um, but we're, we're trying to figure out what's, what's the big picture for why we celebrate Advent. And John answers this here in our text. So John one, one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Over it discontent, frustrated, longing for home. These are not words we would use to describe vacations and experiences that we kind of mark down the calendars for. I can't wait to go on this experience. You don't go into the experience longing to be done with it. Let's take camping and hiking, for example. You wanna go to this beautiful destination, you've loaded your kids or friends up, everybody's ready to go, you drive out, you get to your location, you hike in, so excited you're taking photos of every tree, every tree looks the same, but you're still taking photos. Nobody's even gonna care about these photos, but you, you're so excited though, you've got your poles, you're going after it. All right, you get to your campsite, you set everything up, and you just can't wait to get back to what life is all about, right? Putting away MySpace, putting away all of the, y'all don't use MySpace anymore, that was a joke, come on, (laughs) y'all. Putting away all of the electronics, getting back to what life is all about, being out in nature, growing my five o'clock shadow out, right? Getting, Getting back to the basics, getting wildery but it's not a day or two where you start to get really hungry and you think you're really good at fishing, but you start to realize, man, these fish aren't biting the way they do on YouTube. They don't, they're not biting like I thought. You realize that building a fire is not that fun. Foraging for sticks in the middle of the night, it's difficult to maintain fire. You get cold in the middle of the night. You get these little annoying nicks and cuts all over your hands and legs. Campfire smoke permeates everything around you, your skin, your hair, your clothes. You try to sleep at night, but if you've ever tried to camp outside, you know that nature and nocturnal animals are extremely loud in the middle of the night. It is not enjoyable. Do you know those little sound machines where they have the bugs squeaking? Nobody uses that button, right? Nobody uses that one. We skip it, and the lady that sings, like nobody listens to those things. You start to realize, man, 
What's happening? My, my sleeping pad feels like I'm sleeping on a wet sock on jagged concrete. It's not long in enduring this that you start to say the quiet part out loud. Maybe the most experienced and excited person isn't going to say anything, but somebody in your group might get broken to the point where they're like, man, I'm kind of over this, y'all. Like, you think we could wrap up a day early? Can we get out of this a little bit early? I, I'm longing for my home. I'm longing for my own bed. I'm longing for my own bathroom, not the tree 50 yards away that I've got to walk to with splintered feet, worried if I'm going to get attacked by an owl. I am exhausted. I can't wait to get home, lay in my bed, crack open an ice cold, crispy Topo Chico and put on YouTube and watch Grand Thumb Gun reviews online all night long. You know what we all love doing. This longing, this discontentment, this over it feeling that we all experience happens to us no matter how good our experiences are. Eventually, excitement fades. Our memories fade. Good news fades. Sunsets, mountains, everything fades. The excitement fades and we're left longing for something else. I'm longing for the next thing. I need a new adventure. I need a new job. I need a new spouse. I need a new kid. I need a new something. Everything fades. Why? Why? The Christian worldview says that we were created for something that this world could never, ever offer. We were created for something that this world can never, ever offer. And all these beautiful experiences, all of the good news, all the promotion, all of the good things in our lives, were never meant to ultimately fulfill us, but they're signposts pointing to something greater, pointing to something greater. So what is this greater? What's the greater thing? Well, this greater thing is what the book of John is all about. This greater thing is why we celebrate Advent. This greater thing is John being a Jew, writing to a very Jewish audience, answering the question, is Jesus the person who brings salvation? Is Jesus the person that brings salvation? They've been waiting thousands and thousands of years. Other messiahs said they were the messiah and they've came and gone and died and stayed in the grave. Is Jesus the one? And that's the question we're gonna ask this morning as we look at our text. Is Jesus the one who brings salvation? John answers this, yes, in the affirmative, in two ways. One, because he created us, and two, he sustains us. Jesus is the one who brings salvation because he created us and because he sustains us. Now let's prove it. Let's prove it. We see that Jesus created us from verses one through three. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, 
these verses, although very famous, are packed, are absolutely packed with the most beautiful description and identification about who Jesus is, I would say, in the entire Bible. And to get a handle on what John is getting at, to get a handle on why this is so significant, we need to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis and to figure out what John is getting at here. Look with me in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning, God. You notice John's. In the beginning was the word. Genesis, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was basically empty. There was nothing. And darkness was over the face of the deep. We need to ask, what's John doing here? What's he doing here in these opening verses? Well, if you're trying to tell a very Jewish audience who the Messiah is, if you were trying to tell followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the prophets, everything for thousands and thousands of years, who the Messiah is, you would want to say this in the most resounding, the most affirmative, the most um, uh, inambiguous way uh, to your audience. You don't want to leave anything up for chance here. John is saying that Jesus, who many saw, who they listened to, who they ate with, who they did life with, who they saw miracles come from his hands, that this Jesus is the exact same God who created the heavens and earth in Genesis 1. Whew, that's huge. That's a massive truth statement. And for English readers, for non-Jewish readers, it's very fair to ask, well, why not? Why call him the word? Why not just say in the beginning, Jesus? Like just call him Jesus, right? Well, think about the way that God created everything. Think about the way God created everything. Genesis 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 11. Then you trace through the creation account all the way through Genesis 1. How does God create everything? Through his word. Through his word. What did God use to reveal himself to the entire world? His word. You're starting to see a pattern here. What does God use to save people? What does God use to, to bring sinners new life? His word. Isaiah 55, 11 says that God's word goes out and it doesn't return void. It accomplishes what it was sent to do. See, so imagine being this, this Jewish reader listening from a former Jew in, in, in John hearing this. The word in the Old Testament was God's powerful expression for creation, for revealing who he is and the way that he would save everyone. John is brilliantly affirming that Jesus is God's full revelation of himself. Fully man, fully God, Jesus he is the ultimate creator and the revealer and the savior for the centuries and centuries of longing, waiting, praying, sacrifices, traveling to Jerusalem, on and on and on. He is the answer that they have been looking for. God is here in Jesus and he's here to save. 
Now, what John is teaching is just like the original creation where God created life, he brought meaning, he brought, um, he brought substance from nothingness, he filled the void of eternity with creation. Jesus, in the same way, took on flesh to come to our level. We do not have to build ourselves up to come to God, but he came to our level. He took on flesh to know us, to know us, and to bring us new life, to bring new life, to fulfill in us an eternal longing, an eternal longing that's similar to the emptiness and the void that we see in Genesis 1. And we have this longing hardwired in us to be known by God, to be known by God and to be in a loving relationship with him. Don't get it twisted that if you're not a Christian, you're not in a relationship with God, you're just in a bad relationship. Jesus came to bring a right relationship between sinners and God, to be known by God. And that's the most important thing that we could ever experience. Kurt Thompson writes in The Anatomy of the Soul, this is a long quote, we've got it on the screen, I'll read it slowly, stay with me. It is only when we are known that we are positioned to become conduits of love. And it is love that transforms our minds, makes forgiveness possible, and weaves a community of disparate people into the tapestry of God's family. To be known is to be pursued, examined, and shaken. It is to risk not only the furniture in your home being rearranged, but your floor plans being rewritten, your walls being demolished and reconstructed. To be known means that you allow your, your shame and guilt to be exposed in order for them to be healed. So what does it mean to be known by your creator? What does it mean to be known by Jesus? You see, because Jesus created us, he hardwired inside of our DNA a longing that only he could fulfill. He did that on purpose. And to fulfill this longing, he took on flesh. He became like us, minus sin, to save us. There was an ultimate purpose here. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Jesus came to make this happen by living a perfect life that we're called to live, but then dying for all the sins that we commit. Jesus, think about this. He left eternity with the Father. He descended all the way to earth. And not only stopping at the ground, he went into the tomb and descended into death and resurrected. Why? To bring us from death to life. He is the first one born from the dead. He did that to bring us new life in him. And what that does for us is it renews us, it makes us born again, it recreates us. It's this Genesis and John passage, he makes all things. Jesus being the creator creates a new life in us from the inside out and it changes us and it changes our lens, it changes the way we see not only ourselves but the world around us. What this means is that all of the great experiences, the new births, the, the sunsets, the promotions, the good news, it means all of that are tangible expressions of God's grace in your life 
to enhance your worship of him. Good experiences, beautiful sunsets, all these things, they are no longer necessary to fulfill you. You do not need these things to fulfill you, but what they do is they help maximize your worship for the one thing you were created to be fulfilled by, and that's Jesus. It's Jesus. This leaves a pressing question for us then. Knowing God is very important. We live in an age where spirituality is very high. People claim to know God, but the question is, does God know you? It's one thing to say, well, I know that family and I know that I can go in and get a cup of orange juice anytime I want to, but if they don't know you, they're not letting you in their home. You're in Florida, you might get shot trying to roll up on a stranger's house, right? The question is, it's not just do you know God, but does God know you? Does God know you? Think of the worst fate you could ever receive on, uh, at any point, the worst thing you could ever hear likely is being in front of a doctor and getting a terminal diagnosis or someone close to you getting that same experience. There's something much worse than that, infinitely worse than that. It's standing in front of the creator, standing in front of the creator with all of the evidence around you, his word, Christ's life, death, and resurrection seen by hundreds of people, your very conscience that bothers you, the ability to process logic and think. God has given us all these signposts to point to him, and the worst thing that could ever happen to any person is standing before the creator and hearing him say, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's heavy. You might be here this morning, and if you're anything like me, you might be saying, why in the world would God want to know somebody like me? Why would God want to be in a loving relationship with me? I'm a mess. I'm broken. I have failed. I've hurt so many people. I've got a past that would make the catch me outside girl blush. Charlie Sheen for you older people. It would make you make him absolutely blush. Why in the world would God want to be in a relationship with me? It's a great question. Because in and of ourselves, there's nothing beautiful about us. There's nothing in and of ourselves that's worthy about being in a relationship with God. But herein lies the beauty of your creator being your savior. Here's why it's beautiful that your creator is your savior. He created you and he knows you and he sent Jesus to die for you despite all of your sins, despite all of your failures, despite your fickle love and response to him. And he did all this to know you, not like a distant rock. Like, oh yeah, that's my creation. I created that rock, cool rock. Jesus and God came to know you, not as an acquaintance, but as a loving, beloved child, to be his, to know you intimately, and to recreate you from the inside out. This is the whole reason why we celebrate Advent, because Christ came to save us. I pray that if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't know if God knows you, you might feel like you've been a Christian for 50 years, but you just feel like, I just don't know if God knows me. 
I pray this morning that you would make sure God knows you by trusting in Jesus. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer. God, save me. God, help me. So, is Jesus the person who brings salvation? Absolutely, yes, because he created us, but he's also the answer to our salvation because he sustains us. He sustains us. So we see that in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John used Genesis to teach us how Jesus is the word. Jesus is our savior. Now John is going to Exodus to tell us how Christ Jesus sustains us. If you notice in verse 14, there is a word there. It says, Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus dwelt. Why in the world is this so important? Well, what we're about to do is peel the onion back. Uh, we are gonna go layer by layer. We are about to dive very deep into what it means that Jesus dwelt among us. It's going to feel like we're down a rabbit trail, but I promise we'll be out of the trail soon. You will not have blisters. Just stay with me. I promise it'll make sense. Are y'all with me? Let's do it. All right. So Jesus uses this word dwelt because it would trigger, in a good way, his Jewish audience to think back to Exodus. It would have taken their minds right back to Exodus to the tabernacle. That word is a phrase that means just a movable tent. God gave all these instructions for this movable tabernacle, this tent that God instructed to build. And in this tabernacle, God would come and meet with his people. God would be with them. And they were traveling. Remember, before they hit the promised land, this tabernacle was this removable structure that they tore down, they built back up, kind of how we set up here on Sunday mornings. This was how God met with his people during all of, his, all of Israel's journey. Now, the English word to dwell in the Greek is a phrase that means to tabernacle, okay? We don't say, hey, where are y'all tabernacling at this afternoon? We don't say that, right? But in English, dwell is kind of the best way to get there. But the Greek word John uses here is to tabernacle. John's Jewish audience would immediately know that he is teaching that Jesus is the same God from the Old Testament who met with his people in this tabernacle. This is where they would worship God. This is where they would perform sacrifices for their sins. All right, that's one layer of the onion. All right, we there, tabernacle? Let's go a little bit deeper. What's so important about the tabernacle was that inside of this tent, there was this place called the most holy of holies. This room back in the back that was inaccessible except one time a year by the high priest once his sins were covered, all right? In this most holy place was a throne. Similarly, try to envision the cherubim and the seraphim, these heavenly angels. They sat here, and then it came down, and there was what's called a mercy seat that sat on top of the ark that contained the broken Ten Commandments. What separated God when his presence came down from the broken law was the mercy seat. All right, and on the mercy seat during the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would come in and would put blood on the mercy seat to pay for the sins of all God's people. 
Why is that important? Why did we just peel that layer back? The mercy seat in the Hebrew Old Testament is the exact same word used to describe Jesus in the New Testament. It's a word we see throughout the Bible called propitiation. That's a big word that means a wrath-removing sacrifice. We see that in John 1, 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. What's the point? If I'm you sitting here, I'm like, wrap it up. What's the point? Great, we're here. Here's the point. John is teaching to all of these people, to all of us, that Jesus is the God who meets his people in the tabernacle. Not only that, Jesus is the tabernacle himself. Not only that, Jesus is the mercy seat, the propitiation, the wrath-removing sacrifice that pays for the sins of God's people. He not only is the mercy seat, but he's also the perfect sacrifice himself to pay and satisfy his own wrath. Are y'all with me? Do you see how significant this is? Do you see how great this is? This is amazing grace. Jesus summed up the entire Old New Testament in and of himself. The Old Testament was pointing towards longing for the Savior where there's no more movable tents, no more sacrifices, but that it would be complete. And that's why Jesus is so important. That's why all that Old Testament law, all those uh, instructions about how to build these temples, that's why it was so important. It was looking forward to this Messiah and Jesus who would come. For my skeptic here, you might be saying, well, where in the world's that, that tabernacle today? Right? Wasn't the tabernacle replaced by the temple when they came into Canaan? Wasn't it destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again? Hasn't Jesus resurrected? Where in the world is Jesus tabernacling or dwelling today. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit dwells in us. This is why Jesus can say uh, in John 16, verse seven, he says, uh, I tell you the truth that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. The helper is the Holy Spirit. Christ ascended. He sent his spirit to be with us and he's constantly saving us and going forward. God's spirit is everywhere where Jesus can't be in this beautiful promise for us, for Christians who are left on this earth who still battle sin who still battle disease and sickness and brokenness. For Christians who still long, even if you're massively blessed, you still long for completeness. I'm longing for not experiencing allergies. I'm longing for my five-year-old not getting pink eye in the middle of the night. I'm longing for, longing, longing, work is hard. Every, for Christians who are longing You have a longing that's not in vain. You have a longing that's not sinful. Not necessarily, we can make things simple. But 
The longing in and of itself is not sinful. We have heroes of the faith who have gone before us in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, but as it is they going through all the list of all the famous people from the Bible, they were all sinners. They were massively broken, but it says they desire, they long for a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the story of the Christian experience. This is why we celebrate Advent. We come here longing for Christ's return because we realize this isn't our home. As beautiful as it is, it's hard on this side of heaven. This is not easy. This world is full of brokenness and we're longing. We're longing for paradise. We're longing to be with Jesus. That's a great longing. Do you have that longing? Do you have that longing? If something on this side of earth has got you more captivated, let it go because it's gonna rust, rot, destroy. Enjoy it with an open hand, but long to see Jesus. And as we forge ahead, as we take it day by day, we know that all the experiences we have here on earth, the good, the bad, the boring, all of it, it's preparing us for eternity. And we live life today with joy. We live life today being fulfilled by Christ. We live life today removing the expectation for others and experiences to fulfill us. That means we become better stewards of everything we experience on this earth. This future security that we have as Christians it makes us better stewards of everything. C.S. Lewis said it way better than I ever could. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. I pray that we would all have this future-focused faith, not escapism, not saying, well, I'm just gonna hide in a closet today and just pray Jesus comes. No, we live boldly. We work hard, we love hard, we do all of this because that's what Christ did for us, but we look forward to the future knowing, knowing what's ahead. This longing to be with Christ, this longing to be with him by glorifying him until we get there. Wendy Zoba tells a story of her son Ben when he was five years old and his little five-year-old faith in Jesus. She shared that uh, Ben was in church regularly. He had heard plenty of sermons. Uh, they talked about their faith. By all, uh, by all occurrences and appearances, it would seem like Ben had a saving faith. But they would ask him, like, tell us about your faith. And he would say, well, I trust in Jesus, but I don't wanna give my life to him. And they would be like, hmm, what's that about? Just think about it. So they talk about it, talk about it. And one day at the breakfast table, they were eating and Ben looks up at his parents and he says, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus out of nowhere. And you know how five-year-olds are. And they were like, okay, well, what does this mean? And he just sets his stuff down and he walks to his room and Wendy and her husband kind of perplexed, like what in the world's Ben doing? So Ben goes to his room and they hear some rustling. They're like, we gotta check this out. They go and they peep around the corner, look in his room. He's taking his Star Wars pajamas and folding them up and he's putting them in his Ninja Turtle suitcase. And they were like, Ben, 
what's going on? He said, well, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus and I'm ready to move in with him. I pray that we would have that type of faith. I pray that we would have this understanding that to live for Jesus means that our residence is somewhere else. I pray that we would have this faith of Ben to say that this isn't our home. I pray that we would have the faith of little Ben and long for a day when Christ would return where we can see our eternal home. This world and everything in it is temporary, y'all. Everything here is fleeting, it's fading, it's rusting. Our memories fade, experiences fade. But we were created by Jesus to be in relationship with him. We were created to be with him. And God has promised in Christ that he will be with us, not just today, but through all of eternity. And as Jesus came once in a manger, he's coming again as our Lord and Savior to make all things new, to rid the world of evil, to save his church, to be with us forever. And it's because we have that future looking forward for us, because we have our eternity secure, because we know the end of the story, I pray that we would all today pray, come Lord Jesus. That we would pray, pray come Lord Jesus. Let us long for him together. Let's pray. Jesus, life is fun in many ways. It's painful in many ways. Our good experiences can be overshadowed with bad news. Our, our memories fade. But Lord, none of these were intended to ultimately fulfill us. I pray for those who are longing for the day when you come. I pray in unison with them, come Lord Jesus, come quickly for us. We are ready to be with you. I pray for those who do not know you yet, but experience that burning longing, Father, that you would not give them rest at all until they are trusting in you. I pray, Father, for those who don't know you yet, that you would just rattle the foundations of everything that they think brings fulfillment. Would you allow them to see how vapid and fleeting that they actually are? Jesus, help us to glorify you. Help us to worship you. Help us to eagerly await your return by being good stewards of everything that comes before us. Help us to look and, and, and um, smell and, uh, and share your spirit and your light with all those around us, especially especially as we celebrate this Advent season. We do pray, come Lord Jesus, would you please? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.